Now in our 21st year of service to the worldwide amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio. Your all-amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1141, with a release and air date of Saturday, January 9th, 2021. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. Beginning our 22nd year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1141 of This Week in Amateur Radio. We will have an update on the story from the FCC regarding the proposed new amateur radio licensing fee. The FCC will now require a valid email address on all applications beginning on January 29, 2021. We will have all the details as published in the Federal Register. The FCC is seeking input on expanding the number of amateur radio license volunteer examiner coordinators. We will have the details. Two more national amateur ham fests are calling it quits. We will tell you who they are. The ARRL and ARIES volunteers were ready to assist in the wake of that Christmas Day explosion in Nashville, Tennessee. A member of the ARRL has designed a new ham radio license plate for the state of Kentucky. The ARRL is seeking nominations for six different award programs. Meanwhile, the Japan International DX meeting announces its awards for 2021. The QSO Today Virtual Ham Exposition is on track for a return in March of this year. A balloon carrying amateur radio, launched by a group of Iowa high school amateurs, has begun its fourth circumnavigation of the planet. And 2021 is set to fly by at an even faster rate as scientists reveal that the planet actually is spinning faster now than at any time in the past 50 years. We will tell you by how much in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will talk about Adobe Flash reaching its end of life, and Leo celebrates 2021 with 17 years of the tech guy, on the air. Australia's own Anil Benshoff, VK6FLAB, will tell you how to accomplish what he calls the impossible task. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill sets us up for a play entitled The VHF Frequency Allocation Battle of the 1940s. He will introduce us to the cast of characters. And our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, will present part one of a six-part series on the proper way to produce a broadcast radio public service announcement to promote your club meeting or special event and get it on the air. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our headquarters studio here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from historic Armory Square in downtown Syracuse, New York, I'm Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, along the southern edge of Lake Ontario, 
I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our ham radio station in the icy and snowy Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And reporting from our Frosted News Bureau in Troy, New York, I'm Eric Sattel, KD2RJX. And from Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, where we're still waiting for summer, I'm Fred Fitty, November Fox 2 Fox. And reporting from our News Bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where it's snow one day and gone the next, that's the way to have snow, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR, loving it. And now with our lead story, here's Chris Perrine, KB2FAF. The FCC has agreed with the AWRL and other commenters that its proposed $50 fee for certain amateur radio applications was too high to account for the minimal staff involvement in these applications. The fee proposal was contained in a notice of proposed rulemaking in MD Docket 20-270. With more details on the FCC's decision, we go to Rick Lindquist. WW1ME, who files this report from AWRL headquarters. The FCC has agreed with AWRL and other commenters that its proposed $50 fee for certain amateur radio applications was too high to account for the minimal staff involvement in these applications. In a report and order released on December 29th, the FCC scaled back to $35, the fee for a new license application, as well as a special temporary authority request, a rule waiver request, a license renewal, and a vanity call sign application. All fees are per application. Administrative updates, such as a change of mailing address or email address, are exempt. AWRL filed comments opposing the proposed $50 fee and urged its members to follow suit. As the FCC noted, Although some commenters supported the proposed $50 fee as reasonable and fair, AWRL and many other individual commenters argued that there was no cost-based justification for the application fees. The fee proposal was adopted to implement portions of the Repack Airwaves Yielding Better Access for Users of Modern Services Act of 2018, the so-called Ray Baums Act. The FCC said that after reviewing the record, including the extensive comments and based on its revised analysis of the cost of mostly automated processing, it went with $35. The 2018 statute excludes the amateur service from annual regulatory fees, but not from application fees. The effective date of the fee schedule hasn't been set yet. The FCC said it received more than 197,000 personal license applications in 2019, which includes not only ham radio license applications, but commercial radio operator licenses and general mobile radio service licenses. The commission turned away the arguments of some commenters that the FCC should exempt amateur radio licensees. The commission stated that it has no authority to create an exemption where none presently exists. The Commission also disagreed with those who argued that amateur radio licensees should be exempt from the fees because of their public service contribution during emergencies and disasters. We are very much aware of these laudable and important services amateur radio licensees provide to the American public, the FCC said. 
but noted that specific exemptions provided under Section 8 of the so-called Ray Bombs Act requiring the FCC to assess the fees do not apply to amateur radio personal licenses. Emergency communications, for example, are voluntary and are not required by our rules, the FCC noted. As we have noted previously, while the value of the amateur service to the public as a voluntary, non-commercial communication service, particularly with respect to providing emergency communications, is one of the underlying principles of the amateur service, the amateur service is not an emergency radio service. The Act requires that the FCC switch from a congressionally mandated fee structure to a cost-based system of assessment. The FCC proposed application fees for a broad range of services that use the FCC's universal licensing system, including the amateur radio service, which had been excluded previously. The 2018 statute excludes the amateur service from annual regulatory fees, but not from application fees. While the Raybombs Act amended Section 9 and retained the regulatory fee exemption for amateur radio station licensees, Congress did not include a comparable exemption among the amendments it made to Section 8 of the Act, the FCC report in order explained. The effective date of the fee schedule has not been established, but it will be announced at least 30 days in advance. The FCC has directed the Office of Managing Director, in consultation with the relevant offices and bureaus, to draft a notice for publication in the Federal Register, announcing when rule changes will become effective once the relevant databases, guides, and internal procedures have been updated. Please continue to use the current Wireless Telecommunications Fee Guide for fees related to applications filed in the ULS. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Effective on June 29, 2021, amateur radio licensees and candidates must provide the FCC with an email address on all applications. If no email address is included, the FCC may dismiss the application as defective. On September 16, the FCC adopted a report and order in WT Docket 19-212 on completing the transition to electronic filing, licenses, and authorizations, and correspondence in the wireless radio services. The report and order was published on December 29th in the Federal Register. The FCC has already begun strongly encouraging applicants to provide an email address. Once an email address is provided, the FCC will email a link to an official electronic copy of the license grant. An official copy will also be available at any time by accessing the licensee's password-protected Universal Licensing System account. Licensees can log in to the ULS License Manager System with their Federal Registration Number, or FRN, and password at any time and update anything in their FCC license record, including adding an email address. For questions or password issues, call the CORS-FRN helpline at 
3201, Monday through Friday, from 1300 to 2300 UTC, or reset the password on the FCC website. The only way to refrain from providing an email address on an application would be to submit a request to waive the new rule, providing justification for the request. Bear in mind that the FCC would not be obliged to grant such a request. Under Section 97.21 of the new rules, a person holding a valid amateur radio station license must apply to the FCC for a modification of the license grant as necessary to show the correct mailing and email address, licensee name, club name, licensee trustee name, or license custodian name. For a club or military recreation station license, the application must be presented in a document form to a club station call sign administrator who must submit the information to the FCC in an electronic batch file. Under new section 97.23, each license must show the grantee's correct name, mailing address, and email address. The email address must be an address where the grantee can receive electronic correspondence, the amended rule will state. Revocation of the station license or suspension of the operator license may result when correspondence from the FCC is returned as undeliverable because the grantee failed to provide the correct email address. The Wireless Telecommunications Bureau seeks input on whether the existing 14 volunteer examiner coordinators are sufficient to coordinate the efforts of volunteer examiners in preparing and administering examinations for amateur radio operator licenses or whether the Bureau should open a window to consider authorizing a limited number of additional VECs, but likely no more than five. In a January 5th public notice, the FCC requested comments on whether the current 14 volunteer examiner coordinators are sufficient to facilitate the efforts of their accredited volunteer examiners in administering amateur radio examinations. The ARRLVEC is the largest of the 14 VECs in the United States. Comments are due by February 5th, and reply comments are due by February 19th. After Congress authorized it to do so, the FCC adopted rules in 1983 to allow volunteers to prepare and administer amateur radio examinations, and it established the system of volunteer examiner coordinators and volunteer examiners. Volunteer examiner coordinators introduced consistency into the volunteer examiner program by centralizing accreditation of volunteer examiners, coordinating the dates and times for scheduling examinations, and managing the various administrative tasks arising from examinations, the FCC said. Authorized VECs may operate in any of the 13 VEC regions, but must service at least one region. The FCC pointed out that some VECs now offer remote examinations. The Commission has long maintained 14 VECs and now seeks to consider whether they continue to serve the evolving needs of the amateur community or whether there are unmet needs that warrant considering expanding the number of VECs. The FCC public notice provided questions for framing comments. Are the existing 14 VECs sufficient to coordinate the efforts of volunteer examiners in preparing and administering examinations for amateur radio operator licenses, or are additional VECs needed? 
what needs are currently being met, and which needs, if any, are not. If the FCC were to allow additional VECs, how many more would be needed to satisfy existing amateur radio service license examination needs? The FCC indicated that it will lightly cap the number of additional VECs at five. Given that VECs use a collaborative process to create examination question pools and volunteer examination administration protocols, would additional VECs enhance or hinder this process? How would increasing the number of VECs address the unmet needs, if any, of the amateur radio community, and what obstacles or complications could result from increasing the number of VECs? Interested parties may file short comments on WT Docket Number 21-2 via the FCC's Electronic Comment Filing Service. Visit the FCC's How to Comment on FCC Proceedings page for information on filing extended comments. Comments are due by February 5th, and reply comments are due by February 19th. ARRL invites nominations for awards that recognize excellence in amateur radio educational and technological pursuits. Nominations are also open for the Hiram Percy Maxim Award, ARRL's premier award to honor a young licensee. The Hiram Percy Maxim Award is the premier honor, and for members under 21 whose accomplishments and contributions are of the most exemplary nature within the framework of amateur radio activities. Nominations must be made through your ARRL section manager, who will forward the nomination to ARRL headquarters by March 31st. Nomination forms and supporting information should document as thoroughly as possible the nominee's amateur radio achievements and contributions during the previous calendar year. The ARRL Herbert S. Breyer Instruction Award honors the volunteer amateur radio instructor or professional classroom teacher who uses creative instructional approaches and reflects the highest values of amateur radio. The award highlights quality of and commitment to licensing instruction. Nominations are due by March 15th of 2021. The technical awards category is as follows. The ARRL Microwave Development Award pays tribute to a radio amateur or group of amateurs who contribute to the development of the amateur radio microwave bands. The nomination deadline is March 31. The ARRL Technical Service Award recognizes a radio amateur or group of radio amateurs who provide amateur radio technical assistance or training to others. That nomination is also March 31. The ARRL Technical Innovation Award commends a radio amateur or group who develop and apply new technical ideas or techniques to amateur radio. The nomination deadline there is also March 31. The Knight Distinguished Service Award honors exceptional contributions by an ARRL section manager to the health and vitality of ARRL. The nomination deadline is April 30th. It was named for Joe T. Knight, W5PDY, who is a silent key, and was commended for his exemplary service, not only as ARRL New Mexico section manager for more than 25 years, but for his willingness to share his knowledge and leadership skills. The ARRL Board of Directors selects recipients for these awards. Winners are typically announced following the Board's July meeting. For more information about these awards, there you go to the ARRL website or contact Steve Ewald, WV1X, at ARRL headquarters. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net.
CPAC designated as the 2021 AWRL Northwestern Division Convention will not take place as an in-person gathering this June. The CPAC Executive Committee has been closely monitoring the continuing pandemic situation and has determined that the safest course of action for all is to cancel the 2021 in-person event. CPAC 2021 Chair Don Busek, KE7WNB, announced this week. This decision was based upon the uncertainties of more COVID outbreaks, vaccine availability to all, and the probable social distancing requirements. But most important, it's based upon our genuine concern for the health and safety of you, the attendees, vendors, and presenters. We firmly believe that providing our ham radio community with a safe and quality convention experience is paramount. Busek said that CPAC committee is exploring alternative online and on-air activities and will announce further details as they become available. We look forward to hosting you again in Seaside, Oregon on June 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022, Busek said. Thank you for your patience and understanding, and we invite you to start planning for CPAC 2022. Meanwhile, after 41 years, Hamcom has decided to close its doors also. Hamcom President Bill Nelson, AB5QZ, cited difficulties caused by the pandemic and the rising cost of putting on a show. The decision was not made lately, but the safety and wellness of our volunteers, vendors, and club presenters and attendees is our paramount concern, Nelson said on the Hamcom website. Hamcom has been held each June at the Plano Event Center in Plano, Texas. We sincerely thank each and every person for their support over the past years. Lawmakers in Washington, D.C. plan an investigation into the December collapse at the Arecibo Observatory just weeks after Puerto Rico's outgoing governor committed $8 million in resources to rebuild its historic radio telescope. In the December 1st collapse, the dish was gashed beyond repair following the crash of a 900-ton instrument platform. The telescope, a valued cornerstone in modern astronomy, was being decommissioned by the U.S. National Science Foundation following other damage that occurred weeks earlier. At the time of the final collapse, it had been earmarked for dismantling. Congress is expecting a complete report by the end of February 2021. The Worldwide QSO Today Virtual Ham Exposition will return March 13th and 14th for a full 48 hours. QSO Today host Eric Guth, 4Z1UG slash WA6IGR, announced this week. With more details on this exciting worldwide virtual ham fest, we go to Rick Lindquist, WW1ME, who files this report from League Headquarters. ARRL is a QSO Today Expo partner. The inaugural QSO Today Expo last August attracted more than 16,000 online attendees. The QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo will feature new speakers and presenters, panel discussions, and kit-building workshops, among other activities. Attendees can log in from anywhere. The Virtual Expo offers an opportunity for those concerned about pandemic travel restrictions. Last year, the event's organizers found that 60% of attendees do not go to in-person national conferences, and 40% do not attend state or local events. Registration is required. Advanced tickets are $10, $12.50 at the door, and include entry for the live two-day show, as well as to a 30-day on-demand period after the expo. 
The Expo will include a variety of presentations from well-known ham radio personalities. Visitors also will be able to walk through the virtual exhibit hall to visit an array of amateur radio vendors and see live demonstrations of the latest equipment. The show will leverage newer video technology to provide a better experience for attendees to engage with exhibitors. Visit www.qsotodayhamexpo.com for more details. At the Expo, visitors can learn from a lineup of such well-known ham radio personalities as Bob Alfin, K4UEE, on My Favorite D-Expeditions, to DXCC Top 10 Most Wanted, hosted by Michael Forrester, W0IH, or Using the Arduino in Your Shack, and Ron Jones, K7RJ, on 3D Printer Basics. You will also be able to take part in live virtual kit building workshops. Kits will be available for purchase and delivered to attendees in time for the Expo. Those planning to attend the Expo may take advantage of new speaker calendar technology to create their own calendar of presentations in their time zones, which can be saved to a Google or Outlook calendar. Registrants may return over the post-30 days following the live event to catch speakers and presentations missed during the live period, as well as to explore and re-engage exhibitor offerings. The QSO Today Virtual Ham Expo has all of the familiar hallmarks of an in-person ham fest, including opportunities to connect and learn, AWRL Product Development Manager Bob Interbitson, NQ1R, said. Expect to bump into friends and well-known experts and personalities from throughout our worldwide ham radio community. He explained that attendees visiting an exhibit or virtual lounge will be able to interact with other attendees in those settings. Flex Radio is the Expo's platinum sponsor. Gold sponsors as of this time include Elecraft, RF Finder, and CSI. ARRL Amateur Radio Emergency Service volunteers went on alert ready to deploy in Williamson County, Tennessee, in the aftermath of an apparently intentional explosion early on Christmas Day in front of an AT&T switching facility in downtown Nashville. The blast injured several people and killed the individual believed responsible for the blast. It also damaged buildings, broke water mains, and disrupted telecommunications. ARRL Vice Director and Williamson County Emergency Coordinator Ed Hudgens, WB4RHQ, who lives in Nashville, monitored the situation. The explosion did a lot more damage than was originally thought, Hudgens said in the immediate aftermath. Since about 0730 yesterday, we have had monitoring nets up and running on the local analog repeaters and DMR repeaters. We have mainly been answering questions as best we can. Hudgens said his areas group was among those that stood ready to deploy to the Williamson County PSC to assist with communications for various county offices. The Middle Tennessee Emergency Amateur Repeater System held nets on its DMR repeater system several times a day. The main repeater at the Tennessee Emergency Management Agency site was affected by the outage. Hudgens said it was fortunate that two DMR repeaters had gone online recently in Williamson County and all communications went going through them. Williamson County Aries held a continuous net on its five-repeater linked system to assist hams as needed. 
The Net also relayed news updates from AT&T and county governments and assisted callers on AT&T to implement wireless calling on their phones. In addition to the Williamson County Aries Net, another net activated in Davidson County in Middle Tennessee. A big thanks to those monitoring and providing updates, Don Williams said in the post to the Middle Tennessee Emergency Amateur Repeater System Facebook page. I was able to turn on my HT, locate a good frequency, and get up-to-date information. This was a great help in keeping my house calm with updated info as to the AT&T outage, as both our cell and internet were affected. ARRL headquarters reached out to Tennessee Section Manager David Thomas, KM4NYI, to offer assistance. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Happy New Year to you. 2021. I was thinking back to this day in 2020 and <laughs> how little we knew what lay ahead. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> how little we knew what lay ahead. What did you do for, did you do something fun for New Year's? Uh... Yeah, I can't, couldn't, you know, go out and do anything, I guess. But uh, I hope you did something fun with friends. Maybe a giant New Year's Zoom call. This day in 2020, did we have any idea what Zoom was? Few of us. Only those who worked in companies that used Zoom, which wasn't everybody by any means. I don't, I don't think Zoom was the dominant, uh, was it? Maybe it was. I don't even remember. In my little company, we used uh, Google Meet, and I, maybe we used some Zoom. I don't, I don't really remember. But by this time, uh, by March of last year, Zoom was all of a sudden a, a not just a widely used software program. It was a verb. I'm going to Zoom you. I'll Zoom you. Zoom me back, baby. Zoom me. <laughs> we'll all have a Zoom dinner, a Zoom New Year's Eve party, a Zoom... Christmas. It's kind of interesting how the world can change so rapidly. Now Zoom is uh, it's just a verb, like Google, like Kleenex. We did see a, a sad passing, a number of sad passings in the year 2020. A uh, couple of things ended at the end of the year that, I don't know, maybe you feel a little nostalgic about, maybe not. Flash, end of life. That's the computer term for kicked the bucket it reached its end of life eol on december 31st flash had a checkered history it wasn't you know widely beloved and yet it was very widely used all over the internet the first version of flash it came out in the early uh, 2000s 
It was widely used for um, interactive web pages. You know, remember that little monkey that go back and forth on the on the advertisement and said, "Punch the monkey to win a prize." Remember that flash? People started embedding it in their emails. There were online games, a lot of them, a lot of solitaire games. Flash's kind of big flash in the pan came in 2005 when a, a little company founded by a couple of PayPal employees used it as a way to display video on the web. You remember YouTube? Anybody remember you? Yeah, well, YouTube outlived Flash. In fact, YouTube stopped using Flash quite a few years ago. Lots of companies use Flash to make Flash web pages, you know, animated, fancy web pages. It wasn't just for video playback or gaming. You could do all sorts of stuff. 3D content, virtual tours. It was only a couple of years later that Steve Jobs and the iPhone came out and Steve Jobs announced, yeah, we're not going to support Flash. Which, when, you know, you're a brand new phone, that's pretty gutsy. I'm not going to, I don't need that. Steve had all sorts of reasons. He had some good technical reasons. It was uh, it was heavy. It took a lot of resources, which were scarce on uh, these little devices when they first came out. It also was buggy. But he also didn't like Adobe for some, you know, just purely political reasons. You don't want to make Steve Jobs mad. I, he'd hold a grudge. He was a big grudge holder. And he had a big grudge against Adobe. So he wrote an, an open letter and put it on the front page of Apple saying, we're not going to support Flash. And of course, when the iPad came out three years later, it didn't support it. So YouTube said, oh, you know, what are we going to do? But nobody on an iPhone could see our, our videos. So they quickly settled on a alternative format that was kind of more web compatible, HTML5 video, sometimes they call it, using a, a video technology f from Google. In the 2015, Google announced Google Swifty, which was a program to convert Flash to the HTML5. One year later, Google, in a very googly move, discontinued Swifty. <laughs> oh, Lord. Flash, really, I don't, I, you know, some people sometimes credit the, uh, Steve Jobs with killing Flash. Flash killed itself. I mean, it was heavy and buggy and all sorts of security flaws introduced by Flash. And pretty soon better things came along. Flash didn't really wasn't really necessary there are still i get calls there are still a lot of people who uh who say well what am i going to do without flash but i would bet most of the sites you use unless they're long abandoned don't use flash anymore you might be surprised how well you can do with that flash and for a long time operating systems haven't included flash browsers stopped including flash it's pretty much gone you know and i don't think we should say goodbye with anger or hatred we should say thank you flash for powering the early days of the of the web thank you <laughs> thank you flash but you know like every technology they got it got replaced it got replaced by better technologies times have changed i did i started the tech guy show january 4th uh, 2004 wow 16 years ago 17 years ago now 17 years ago lots changed since then Mostly ch phones. Phone, the, the big change over the last 17 years has been the advent of the smartphone. We now have in our pockets computers that are 10 times faster than the best computers we could buy 17 years ago. Easily. Easily. And the idea that the Internet available everywhere 
In 2004, uh, the Internet existed. We knew about the Internet, but the idea that you could get it even as you're walking around downtown or out in a park, or, that was just kind of a dream. 17 years old, this show is. Wow. That's a long time, especially for a show that deals with something so, uh, you know, modern, cutting edge as tech. I mean, if it were a gardening show, actually, in a way, gardening show 17 years would be a lot longer because how long can you talk about hummus? And it doesn't. Humus? Oh, well, there you go. Hummus is something else. How long can you talk about dirt? After, you know, it doesn't change. Gardening, the technology, it's changed a little, but it's the technology that's changed, right? And that's what this show is all about. It's changed a lot. We had the internet. We weren't savages. We even had personal computers, but we didn't. We had cell phones, but in 2004, it wasn't, the cell phone wasn't anything to write home about. I mean, I had a fancy, fancy BlackBerry. Oh, it had a keyboard. You could type in messages instead of having to go A, 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 B, C, D, 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 E, F, comma, 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 that kind of thing. Remember doing that in text messages? No wonder text messaging didn't take on in the United States. It just it's never caught on because nobody would do it because it was so hard. Kids were good. You'd see these little th thumbs going. They're not kids anymore. Those kids are in their 30s now. <laughs> you see their little thumbs going, and they could take, they could type these uh, texts very quickly. T9 was the technology they called that, T9. But once they had real keyboards, oh, that, now you could type messages and stuff. You could do email. BlackBerry was the first for that. Ooh, that was exciting. Remember I had a, um, what was that? <laughs> a sidekick. Remember that? You'd, the screen, you'd flip it, and it would kind of go whoop. And, it, and there'd be a keyboard underneath, and then you whoop, you'd whoop it back down. The state-of-the-art in cell phones was not, you know, we had something called the uh, wireless access protocol, special pages on the web designed for mobile access, because none of the browsers built into these little doohickeys could do anything. You know, they couldn't render a real web page. And this was back when the web was pretty simple. No flash. Well, we had flash, but no flash on your phone. Uh, fast forward, you know, a couple of years later, the iPhone came out. The world changed. The iPhone really was kind of a landmark moment in technology. Suddenly, you had a powerful phone in your pocket. It was always connected to the Internet. You're carrying it around with you all the time. It had GPS built in, microphone, camera. I mean, speakers. You, This was an amazing, this is an amazing thing, this phone in our pocket. That wasn't around when this show started. We talk a lot more about uh, smartphones and, and internet than we did then. A little less about uh, desktop computing. That's kind of, uh, it's not obsolete, but it's, you know, it's less, less interesting. CDs, we were buying CDs in 2004, not anymore. Mm -mm. Although I saw a surprising statistic for 2020. 2020 is such an unusual year because of the quarantine. The sales of books, printed books, was up 8% in 2020. What else are you going to do? Read a book. You're home, read a book. Publishers were had a huge year. E-books and audiobooks also up. Kind of amazing. Audiobook revenue up 17% between 2019 and 2020. E-book sales, which have been going down. I mean, e-books, that was the hot thing. Remember that, the Kindle and the e-book and all that? And it was very hot for a while, but it actually had been going down for the last several years, e-book sales. But they're up 16% in 2020. It's kind of amazing. You know, that's one thing about 2020 is it's, it's such a, 
unusual year in the march of years in the kind of the steady progress of technology. Everything changed a little bit. And I think it will change kind of permanently. I have a feeling. I have a feeling that, you know, we're going to we're going to look back at 2020 besides, you know, all the obvious things and say, yeah, boy, that's when, you know, people start buying books again. I don't know if that's going to continue. It's when streaming took off. Holy cow, was this a good year for streaming companies like Netflix? Oh, boy. Everybody uh, subscribing 50% increase in uh, subscriptions to streaming services. Very big. And that's one thing that's going to that's a change that I don't think is going to go back. You might stop buying hardcover books, but I have a feeling once you get used to, you know, watching stuff over the internet and you have enough internet to do it and of course people are also upgrading their internet, and spending more on their internet. According to the journal about a year ago, Americans told their Harris Poll survey that they were willing to subscribe to an average of 3.6 streaming services. How about you? How many streaming services do you subscribe to? You know, budgets aren't infinite. So when you do that, you what do you cut up? You might cut back pay TV providers, cable and satellite. They've lost more than a million customers every quarter since mid-2018. I think there are shifts that changes like work from home. You know, we'll probably go back to going to work, a lot of us. But it did, it did maybe, maybe people got the idea you could do it and it would, might work and employers might be open to that idea more. And we employees might be kind of more open to that idea more. Then there's stuff like buying hardcover books. It's probably going to revert back to the, the norm. I don't think all of a sudden people are going to say, boy, I really enjoyed that year of reading hardcover books. I'm going to keep doing that. Maybe they will. I don't know. And then there's stuff like streaming that's never going to go back. That's, that's a complete change. Something that was coming, but the pandemic hastened it. That's why 17 years, I never get bored with this stuff. It's always interesting. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. If Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, or Eugene O'Neill had been amateur radio operators, one of them certainly would have written a play about the VHF frequency allocation battle of the mid-1940s. For, except for sex, this event had all the elements of a great drama. Power, passion, politics, greed, and sudden twists and turns in the plot were the hallmark of this epic battle. It hastened the destruction of probably the greatest man in the history of radio, solidified the stronghold of another in his quest for total television domination, doomed a viable alternative in the infant television industry, and gave birth to the predecessor of CB Radio. Got your attention? Then let's open our playbills and read The Cast of Characters. The ARRL and the 50,000 Amateur Radio Operators. Prior to World War II, 
hams were virtually the only major users of the UHF spectrum as the frequencies above 25 megacycles were then known. They had the use of the 10 meter band from 28 to 30 megacycles and 5 meters from 56 to 60 megacycles since the late 1920s as well as a small slice of spectrum at 400 megacycles. In the late 1930s, the FCC had allocated two new amateur bands to amateurs, 2.5 meters from 112 to 116 megacycles and 1.25 meters from 224 to 230 megacycles. Except for 10 meters, most of the operations on these frequencies were done with very simple equipment. Modulated oscillators and super-regenerative receivers were the mainstay of their activities. For those not familiar with this type of equipment, a modulated oscillator was a tube coupled to a tuned circuit directly on the desired frequency which was modulated by another tube. Since crystal control and frequency multiplication were not used, the resulting signal varied in both frequency and amplitude when the oscillator was modulated. The only way to receive such an unstable signal was with a super-regenerative receiver. Invented by Major Edwin Armstrong in the early 1920s, the Super Jenny was extremely sensitive but very broad-banded. It gave off a loud rushing noise like an FM receiver unsquelched. A complete phone station of this type could be built with only three tubes, an important consideration for the Depression-era hams. Except for limited operation on the 112 through 116 megacycle band in World War II under WERS or the War Emergency Radio Service, amateur stations had been silent since December 7, 1941. Now, late in 1944, with the end of the war in sight and new VHF-UHF tubes in production for the war effort, the ARRL was making plans for more bands above 25 megacycles. Major Edwin H. Armstrong the unquestioned father of modern radio, Major Armstrong had experienced several setbacks in the 1920s and 1930s, partly because of his secretive nature and uncompromising attitude. He had delayed in obtaining his original patent on the regenerative detector, and, when he did finally apply, he omitted the oscillating properties of the circuit. Lee DeForest challenged Armstrong on this invention by submitting a circuit of his own that he claimed he developed in mid-1912. Armstrong initially won based on the fact that DeForest's design was basically uncontrolled feedback. When, however, Armstrong flaunted his court victory by flying a flag with his patent number on it where DeForest could see it, and when Armstrong refused to grant DeForest a license to manufacture regenerative receivers, DeForest went back to court and this time won. In two separate cases, the Supreme Court ruled that DeForest not Armstrong, was the inventor of regeneration. This was bad enough, but then Armstrong lost another court battle. Although he had invented the superheterodyne receiver while in France in 1918, it was based partly on a crude, barely functional converter designed by a Frenchman. Despite the obvious superiority of Armstrong's design, the courts ruled against him again. Desperate for a success to reverse these setbacks, Armstrong turned to the idea of FM. At that time, the late 1920s, the concept of FM was known, but it was widely believed that it was impractical, if not impossible. Armstrong, however, proved them wrong, and by 1933-1934 had developed an operational, noise-free, wideband FM system. He offered it to RCA, which had the first right of refusal. RCA, for reasons we will see in a moment, declined to fully develop FM, and Armstrong turned to GE. In Schenectady, 
he found an ally in W.R.G. Baker, a GE vice president, who saw the potential in FM. With GE's help, he continued to develop FM, got the FCC to allocate a slice of the VHF spectrum for FM broadcasting from 42 to 50 megacycles, and set up his first FM broadcasting station, W2XMN, in Alpine, New Jersey. With two other pioneer FM stations, W1XPW in Meridian, Connecticut, and W2XOY in Schenectady, coming on the air in 1939 and 1940, the new Yankee network was up and running. Armstrong was convinced that, once the war ended, FM would completely replace AM as the broadcasting standard, and he wanted a large chunk of VHF frequencies to accommodate it. Brigadier General David Sarnoff and RCA for the first 45 years of its corporate life, RCA was Sarnoff, and vice versa. From his humble beginnings as a telegraph boy and the wireless operator who copied the Olympic wireless signals about the doomed Titanic, he had risen quickly in the Marconi organization and was with RCA from the start. Sarnoff had watched the progress of his old friend Armstrong as he developed FM. However, he had other plans for RCA. Sarnoff was convinced that television was the future and radio was the past. Throughout the 1930s, he had poured millions of RCA's dollars into an all-electronic television system to replace the crude mechanical spinning disc sets that were in the experimental stage. By the late 1930s, he had a viable, all-electronic system ready to go. On April 20, 1939, at the New York World's Fair, Sarnoff introduced commercial television to the world using the slices of VHF spectrum that the FCC had set aside for experimental television. Sarnoff's interest in the VHF frequencies extended beyond obtaining large allocations for television. He also wanted to minimize the frequencies available for FM broadcast. To him, radio was simply radio an old technology made obsolete by television. He also realized that the public had a limited amount of disposable income available and he wanted every spare dollar to be spent on TV sets, not FM radios. Sarnoff saw FM broadcasting as a serious threat to his beloved child and he wasn't going to allow FM to gobble precious VHF frequencies that he felt rightfully belonged to television. William Paley and CBS Although only a supporting player in this drama, William Paley and his CBS network almost changed the course of TV history and, at one point, had both the FCC and the Supreme Court on their side. Paley, through the genius of Peter Goldmark, one of CBS's top engineers, had developed a working color television system with brilliant, lifelike colors more than a decade before the RCA color system was remotely viable. In 1940, as CBS was looking for a way to get past Sarnoff and RCA's stranglehold of patents on their all-electronic black-and-white system, Peter Goldmark came up with the solution. Going back to the 1920s and the mechanical spinning disc, Goldmark developed a hybrid electronic mechanical system. Using the spinning disc, which CBS now called the color wheel, with red, blue, and green filters, he scanned it with an electron beam. On the receiving end, a similar color wheel, synchronized to spin at the same speed, detected the color signal. On August 28th and September 4th, 1940, CBS gave demonstrations of their color TV system to the FCC. The FCC was very impressed with the vivid, sharp clarity of the colors they saw on the screen. By contrast, RCA's color system was an embarrassing flop. In addition to wanting television to start off directly with color, 
Goldmark was also convinced that the post-war frequency allocations for TV should be on UHF, not VHF. In fact, CBS was so sure that the UHF color system would be the industry standard that they had no plans at all to apply for any VHF TV license. And so, the players in this drama wait in the wings for their cue to come out on the stage. How will they react to the FCC's first VHF allocations proposal issued in late 1944? Who will live past Act One? Who will make it to the final curtain call? The ancient amateur archives with front row seats will have the answers. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Many a transmitting radio ham will have sparked their interest in radio by throwing an aerial out of the window and tuning carefully up and down the medium and shortwave bands, trying to receive the weak signals from distant world broadcasters. It was often the way that enthusiasts started to discover that propagation is an incredibly complicated process, meaning that signals could be rock-crushingly strong one day and almost impossible to hear the next. For many, shortwave listening becomes a lifelong hobby, and one such denizen of the airwaves has recently reported a notable catch. On the 15th of October last year, a medium-wave AM radio broadcast on 560 kHz from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's CBC Yukon station was heard 7,000 kilometres away in Finland. The CBC website reported that Jorma Mantala, who lives in Kangasala, Finland, was scanning the airwaves and came across the signal from Dawson City in the Yukon, broadcasting CBC's Yukon Morning Show. The signal lasted about an hour, and the host on that day was Ellen Jones in Whitehorse. On hearing the signal, Mantala sent an email with an attached audio clip asking for confirmation. CBC Yukon wrote back to him to confirm what he'd heard. They also scheduled an interview by video conference so that Yorma could speak about his hobby. That particular day, the signal was very clear, said Yorma. He's part of the Finnish Amateur Radio League, and he started listening to signals in 1967. He uses custom-built equipment to scan for long-range shortwave and AM radio signals. In his interview on CBC Yukon, Yorma described shortwave listening. The game is to discover new broadcasting stations, identify them, and then send an email to confirm the reception. It's been my hobby for 50 years, he said. Serious shortwave listeners use very long wires, often strung between trees, which can pick up very faint radio signals on occasion. These steel or copper wires can be one kilometre in length. Over the years, Mantilla has heard signals from as far away as New Zealand. You can't really go any further. It's on the opposite side of the world, he said. He's also received confirmation cards from around the world, including stations in Japan and Israel. And now he can add CBC North to that list. Long-range Canadian signals have become more rare as technology changes. 
CBC shut down its shortwave broadcasting facility in Sackville, New Brunswick in 2012. And CBC Yukon has been changing its transmitters from AM to FM across the northern wilderness of Canada, which brings higher audio quality but less distant. ARRL Amateur Radio Emergency Service, RACES and Skywarn volunteers in upstate New York were called upon on the morning of December 24th to provide current snowpack amounts, future rainfall amounts, and river and stream gauge levels to the National Weather Service. Our Aries group got a request from two local county emergency managers in the Catskill District of New York, Shenango and Otsego counties, said Otsego County Emergency Coordinator Corey Tellerico, KD2HXE. The reason for concern and activation was the December 16th and 17th snowstorm that dumped between 17 and 41 inches of snow on the area, compounded with forecast rain for Christmas Eve into Christmas Day and the potential for serious localized flooding. Between the two county Aries groups, which included members of the Shenango Valley Amateur Radio Association out of Norwich and the Oneonta Amateur Radio Club of Otsego County, the volunteers were able to run nets on December 24th at 10 a.m. with 10 check-ins and 7 p.m. with 9 check-ins, as well as a Christmas morning net at 7 a.m. with 8 check-ins. I observed the Susquehanna River rise in the city of Oneonta between 4.5 and 5.5 feet in a matter of about six hours while on duty as a New York State Park police officer, Tellerico said. All of our reports were forwarded to the National Weather Service as well as the two county emergency managers. Tellerico said the event demonstrated the true dedication of our members in the field in taking time away from their families during the holiday for the goal of public service. The groups received a complimentary email from Otsego County Emergency Services Coordinator Arthur Klinger, Jr. Your team's dedication is greatly appreciated, he said. A balloon-carrying amateur radio launched by students in Iowa circles the Earth a fourth time. Three circumnavigations after its launch, the Pella Amateur Radio Club's APRS balloon was still the pride of the Jefferson Intermediate School 5th grade, who helped launch it back in November. It ended the year 2020 as a success in the sky, transmitting on 144.39 MHz with a call sign of WB0URW-8. The helium-filled balloon had completed three trips around the world since its November 5th launch and seemed unstoppable. It was still making its rounds as 2021 dawned, according to Radio Club member Jim Emmert, WB0URW. Jim told KNIA and KRLS Radio that its third trip around the planet Earth, the balloon passed over Canada, Greenland, Portugal, Spain, Albania, and North Macedonia, among many other places. Powered by solar panels, the balloon can be tracked on the Internet. According to a January 6th report by the radio stations, the balloon had since completed its fourth trip, a journey that takes about two weeks. The students have reason to be proud. A recent winter contest hosted by one Canadian amateur radio club turned out to be a disaster, and members couldn't have been happier. The Halifax Amateur Radio Club called their contest the two-meter get-on-the-air winter event, and it was designed to challenge the ham's ability to stay connected in the face of an emergency. For four hours on January 2nd, it was a dry run for disaster for John Bignell, VE1, JMB, the club's director-at-large, and 50 or so other club members. It also turned out to be a frozen run. The contest went forward despite a heavy snowfall 
that covered much of Nova Scotia. John, who was also an EHS advanced care paramedic, said the contest underscored the need for HAMS to have a reliable communications network when disaster strikes, as it did in 2017 when Bell Alliance suffered a connection outage of landlines and cell phones in eastern Canada. John told the Saltwire Network website that the contest was also about having fun, but it's important to remember, too, that when Red Cross, rescue teams, or ground search personnel need communications backup, HAMS should be there and ready. That makes everyone a winner in every contest. Thanks to a grant from the ASME Foundation, the northernmost reverse beacon net node in Europe went online December 22nd. It was made possible by a ASME Foundation initiative to provide additional reverse beacon network nodes in underserved areas. The latest node to become active is hosted by Radio Arcala OH8X, very close to the Lapland region. At and above the Arctic Circle during hours of darkness, polar path propagation offers a footprint covering all of North America for many hours, even for stations within the auroral oval, and stations in the far north have been able to take advantage. The OH-8X reverse beacon net node would further help the study of the polar path mode, in which Radio Arcala will be cooperating with the northern scientific community. The reverse beacon net node receiver is currently located at the Radio Arcala station, OH-8X, at 65-1103 north and 26-1453 east but may later be moved even further north to be in the heart of the auroral region of the Arctic Circle. A ham radio license plate designed by AWRL member Matt Machiavelli, KY4GPD of Georgetown, Kentucky, has received the approval of the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet. His design was one of four options, which included retaining the current license plate design. The ham radio community in the Bluegrass State picked Machiavelli's design with a 41% plurality. It just hasn't sunk in, Machiavelli told the Georgetown News graphic. I'm just amazed that it actually went. Somebody in the state government must like the idea, he said. The lengthy approval process involves some footwork on the part of the AWRL field organization in Kentucky. After the polling ended, AWRL Kentucky Section Gate Government Liaison Jack Hedges, KY4TPR, met with the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet for final approval on Machiavelli's design. If there is ever an example of what the AWRL organization can do for the ham radio community, this would be it, Hedges told the newspaper. The new license plate will not be available until the current stock of plates is depleted, which is anticipated to be next summer. AWRL Kentucky Section Manager Steve Morgan, W4NHO, told the newspaper that a ham radio license plate is important to build awareness of amateur radio. The amateur radio license plate is sort of like a billboard saying, you're from Kentucky and you're a ham radio operator, Morgan said. Machiavelli agreed, saying he thought the current design had become stale and did not stand out. A ham for six years, Machiavelli is a certified Skywarn storm spotter and an assistant emergency coordinator for Scott County, Kentucky. I heard some people already said that they like the new design and are going to switch when it comes out, Machiavelli told the newspaper. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify.
Foundations of Amateur Radio. For decades I've been playing with every new piece of technology that comes my way. In amateur radio terms, that's reflected in, among other things, playing with different antennas, radios, modes and software. One of the modes I've played with is Slow Scan Television, or SSTV. It's an amateur mode that transmits pictures rather than voice over amateur radio. A couple of months ago, a local amateur, Adrian, Victor Kilo 6 X-Ray Alpha Mike, set up an SSTV repeater. The way it works is that you tune to the repeater frequency, listen for a while, and when the frequency is clear, transmit an image. The repeater will receive your image and retransmit it. It's an excellent way to test your gear and software, so I played with it and made it all work for me. In 2012, I was part of a public event where local schools participated in a competition to have the opportunity to ask an astronaut on board the International Space Station a question as part of the City of Light 50th anniversary of John Glenn's first orbit. The event was under the auspices of a group called Amateur Radio on the International Space Station, or ARIS, an organisation that celebrated its 20th anniversary in 2020. Assisting with the logistics behind the scenes firsthand, and the amount of equipment used, I'd gained a healthy respect for the complexity involved. The ISS has several radio amateurs on orbit. Among their onboard activities are plenty of amateur radio-friendly ones. In addition to ARIS, you'll also find repeaters, voice, packets and other interesting signals if you listen out for them. In previous years, I've made abortive attempts at using my station to listen and transmit to space, with varying degrees of success. On a regular basis, the ISS transmits SSTV using amateur radio. Often, you'll find a series of images that commemorate an activity. During the final week of 2020, astronauts on the ISS celebrated 20 years of ARIS by transmitting a series of images on a rotating basis as the ISS orbits the Earth. One of my friends made a throwaway comment about listening to the International Space Station and decoding slow-scan television. I'd heard about this event on various social media outlets, but put it in the too-hard basket. Based on what I'd seen during my ARIS event, my own trials, and what local amateurs have been playing with in the way of interesting cross-polarised antennas, rotators and the like, I decided that this was a long-term project, unachievable with my current station. My station consists of a dual-band vertical antenna for 2 metres and 70 centimetres on my roof, at about 2 metres above ground level. The radio is my trusty Yaesu FT-857D, connected to a Debian Linux laptop running three bits of software, RigControlD, GPredict and QSSTV. With a high level of apprehension, I fired up my station, tuned my radio, updated the orbital information and radio frequencies, and waited for the first acquisition of signal from the ISS. Imagine my surprise when a picture started appearing on my screen. It's a lot like the days of 300-board dial-up, getting a picture from some remote computer back in 1985. With that, I managed to receive several of the images by just letting it run for the next couple of days. I'm glad my friend made their comment, because it spurred me into action to try for myself. I'll be the first to admit that the image quality isn't broadcast ready, or that I made mistakes or that I should have started listening at the beginning of the week rather than the last few days. But all that is just noise, because I can report that it works, and I have the pictures to prove it. 
I now have most of the image series. Number 2 is missing and I only have part of number 1, but there are some beauties among the 35 images I captured. I've published them on my project website at vk6flab.com for you to have a look at and use as inspiration for your own seemingly impossible task. This leaves me wondering what else I can hear from overflying spacecraft using this setup. What have you heard and what equipment were you using to make that happen? Are there any impossible tasks that you've avoided? I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. This is W2XBS with the propagation forecast for Friday, January 8th, 2021. Tad Cook, K7RA in Seattle, reports that sunspots disappeared after January 2nd. So the average daily sunspot number dropped from 27.1 last week to 10 for the December 31st to January 6th reporting week. As a result, average daily solar flux declined as well from 86.4 to 78.6. Geomagnetic indicators remain quiet with planetary A indices changing from 6.9 to 5.1 and the middle latitude numbers from 5 to 4. This decline was unexpected and of course we would rather see more and more sunspots as solar cycle 25 progresses, but this is normal. We expect a lot of variability in any sunspot cycle. Predicted solar flux for the next 15 days looks depressed, far different from the high 80s we saw around Christmas. Solar flux is expected at 74 on January 8th to the 15th, 80 on the 16th, 82 on January 17th to the 27th, and 80 on January 28th to the 31st. Planetary A indices is predicted at 8 on January 10th and 11th, 5 on January 12th to the 16th, 10 on January 17th to the 20th, and 5 once again on January 21st to the 24th. The geomagnetic field will be quiet on January 10th, 12th to the 14th, the 22nd, and the 30th to the 31st. Here's the AMSAT report. At year's end, Martha Saragovitz, the long-term office manager at AMSAT, retired as she had run the office literally for decades. It was hard to see her leave. With Martha's departure, AMSAT has closed the office and soon will have a virtual office. Members will be able to call a number and be connected to someone who will be able to assist. All AMSAT store items will be available but will be handled through vendors instead of through the office in an effort to streamline things. Mail will be received, opened, scanned, and emailed, so trips to the post office will not need to be done on a daily basis. In the meantime, until mail service is operational, send all mail to AMSAT's permanent mailing address, P.O. Box 27, Washington, D.C., zip 20044-0027. You can always get in touch with someone through the AMSAT.org website. Click on the Contact button in the upper right corner of the homepage. Our thanks to Bruce Page, KK5DO, for this report. The Indian Ocean Island nation of Mauritius plans to launch MIRSAT-1, Mauritius Imagery and Radio Satellite 1, in 2021. The project was the first winner of the 2018 round of the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs and the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency KiboCube program. The CubeSat will carry an amateur radio VU digipeter with a downlink of 436.925 MHz has been coordinated. 
It's expected that Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency will launch Mirasat-1 to the International Space Station in February for deployment in May or June, according to Space in Africa. The 1U nanosatellite was designed by a team of Mauritian engineers and an experienced radio amateur from the Mauritius Amateur Radio Society in collaboration with experts from AAC Clyde Space UK. In recent years, developments in small satellite technology have brought space communications within the reach of the average radio amateur. Whether it is listening to the International Space Station, which can be done using a simple VHF handheld, by the way, or transmitting through the many ham satellites that now orbit the Earth, this has become a popular activity for many radio amateurs. News now from Spain about a delay to the launch of their latest project. Felix, Echo Alpha 4 Golf Quebec Sierra of AMSAT EA, reports that Alba Orbital, the UK space broker that manages the launch of EA Sat 2 and Hades amateur radio satellites, has informed them of a delay in the SpaceX launch, which had been planned for January the 14th. The delay is attributable to Momentus, which acts as an integrator with SpaceX. The delay means that the next launch opportunity would probably fall back to March, coinciding with the Starlink mission. The satellites are located in an estimated orbit of between 450 and 550 kilometres, with an inclination of 53 degrees. As for the satellite units themselves, this should not be a major setback. AMSAT EA do not expect a significant drain on the batteries. We'll keep you all posted, said Felix. You can find more information about the Spanish ham satellites at their website, www.amsat-ea.org. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at twiar.net. Most ham radio clubs have some sort of fundraising event each year. With a little extra effort, you can greatly improve the attendance at your club's next ham fest or other fundraiser. Most radio and TV stations offer free airtime to not-for-profit organizations to promote special events. There are often strict guidelines on submissions to media outlets, but even if you don't know what they are, you can often meet the requirements by submitting your information months ahead of time and wording your announcement correctly. Remember, most media outlets will not call you to get clarifications or proof of not-profit status. It's easier for them to pitch them in the trash than call and confirm the information that you should have included anyway. If you want the free airtime, the burden is on you to have those announcements ready for air when your announcement hits the mail. In this series, we'll create and submit a public service announcement for your local TV and radio stations. Be sure to get your club PR person to pay close attention to this series on This Week in Amateur Radio. First off, we need to put on paper a description of the event we wish to promote, answering all the pertinent questions of who, what, why, where, and when. Be sure to get complete answers to all these questions, assuming the information is being provided to people who know none of the above. Make no assumptions about what your audience may or may not already know, so provide all the information and double-check it for accuracy. 
if your public service announcement or PSA says it's a half mile past Highway 101 to enter the fairgrounds, drive it yourself to be sure that is correct. Leave nothing to chance. Next time, we'll cover the outline for the PSA and putting ink on paper. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. A 1979 BBC programme about civilian involvement in radio-based intelligence during World War I and World War II is available for viewing, and it features amateur radio. Illustrated with archival film and photographs, as well as interviews with those involved, the documentary traces the evolution of civilian involvement in radio-based intelligence during both world wars. It was the tireless work of amateur radio enthusiasts during World War I that initially convinced the Admiralty to establish a radio intercept station at Hunstanton in Norfolk. Playing an integral role during the war, technological advances meant that radio operators could pinpoint signals, thus uncovering the movement of German boats, leading to the decisive Battle of Jutland in 1916. Wireless espionage was to play an even more important role during World War II, with the Secret Intelligence Service setting up the Radio Security Service, which was staffed by voluntary interceptors, a band of amateur radio enthusiasts scattered across Britain. The information they collected was interpreted by some of the brightest minds in the country, who also had a large hand in deceiving German forces by feeding false intelligence. You can watch wartime radio The Secret Listeners on YouTube, but it is also available directly on the Southgate Amateur Radio News website, www.southgatearc.org. Just go to the story entitled The Secret Listeners. The Japan International DX Meeting Committee, in cooperation with CQ Magazine, has announced awards to de-expedition teams and individuals who made outstanding contributions to the world's DX community. The 2020 Japan International DX Meeting Award program will recognize the VP8PJ South Orkney De-Expedition Team, the VP2VB Yasmi Memorial Expedition Team, and the TO0Z St. Bartholomew Expedition Team as De-Expeditions of the Year. Despite the situation caused by the pandemic, these teams overcame all the difficulties and organized de-expeditions successfully with fine teamwork. The Japan International DX Meeting Contribution Award 2020 went to Joe Taylor, K1JT, for his development of WSJTX software with cutting-edge digital technology and to ARRL Director of Operations, Norm Fusaro, W3IZ, for demonstrating brilliant leadership in managing the DXCC award program during the pandemic. For those of us that can just about remember hair down to our shoulders and the smell of motorbike leather in our nostrils, it's good to see a rock god being recognised, although you might not have expected it from the amateur radio community. But as a world product out of the Netherlands, I think we can allow them to mark his passing at the end of last year. With the passing of Edward Ludovic Van Halen, better known as Eddie, the legendary guitarist of the band Van Halen, on October the 6th, 2020, a special tribute event station is on air, with the call sign Papa Alpha 5150 Echo Victor Hotel, until January the 31st, 2021, which is a few days after Eddie's birthday. 
The numbers 5150 refer to different moments in the Van Halen history, including Eddie's recording studio, guitars, and the first album with lead singer Sammy Hagar. QSL is via the station operator, Frank, Papa, Foxtrot 1, Sierra, Charlie, Tango, via the Bureau, and there will be a limited number of special QSL cards. But please note that the QSL is only via the Bureau. There's an entry for PA5150EVH at QRZ.com, including a video and more details. Croatia has joined a small number of countries to allow operation on the new 40 MHz amateur 8-meter band. Dragan Moslovic, 9A6W, reports that national telecom authorities there have granted him a one-year experimental license to operate from 40.660 MHz to 40.700 MHz in the industrial, scientific, and medical band. Croatia became the fifth country to offer at least some operating authority in that band. Ireland, Slovenia, and South Africa already have 40 MHz allocations, while Lithuania has allocated spot frequencies for experimental purposes. The E17GL blog offers more information. Here's an updated list of upcoming ARRL Learning Network webinars. This schedule is subject to change. Amateur Radio Logging, hosted by Anthony Lucier, K8ZT. Discover the advantages of keeping an electronic amateur radio log. Find out why you may need more than one software program for logging, contesting, digital modes, special events, and more. Learn about using one full-featured logging program to pull everything together, interface with outside databases, handle electronic QSLing, and more. The discussion will include file formats, importing and exporting data between programs, submitting contest logs online, and safe backup of data. This webinar is scheduled for Thursday, January 14th, 2021 at 12.30 p.m. Pacific, 3.30 p.m. Eastern, or 2030 UTC. Emergency Communications. Why Train? Hosted by North Texas Section Emergency Coordinator Greg Evans, K5GTX. Why Should We Train? Utilizing amateur radio operators in an emergency communication situation is a key function that can save lives. We must be able to respond to the needs of our served agencies quickly and responsibly. Topics covered include the incident command system and its relevance, building on consistent training, interoperability with multiple communications providers, interoperability with VOAD and partners, and Mission 1, get the information delivered. This webinar is scheduled to be held on Thursday, January 21st, 2021 from 12.30 p.m. Pacific, 3.30 p.m. Eastern, or 2030 UTC. Easy Helical Copper Tape and PVC 2-Meter Vertical Antennas, hosted by John Portoon, W6NBC. Here's how to quickly build from hardware store copper tape and PVC pipe an 18-inch, continuously loaded, lightweight portable or base station 2-meter omnidirectional vertical with performance and efficiency comparable to a 5-foot J-pole. The cost is roughly $10. It's an easy afternoon project, ideal for the new ham, but equal to the serious ham's needs. It is great for events like bikeathons. It also makes an excellent ham radio club hands-on building project, and the design is adaptable to other bands. This webinar is scheduled to be held on Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021, from 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, or 1800 UTC. Please note that ARRL Learning Network webinars are a members-only benefit. 
We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. The 2021 running of the AM Rally will take place from 0000 UTC on Saturday, February 6th to 0700 UTC on Monday, February 8th. The annual AM Rally operating event encourages all operators to explore Amateur Radio's original voice mode by showcasing the various types of amplitude modulation equipment in use today, ranging from early vacuum tube radios to the latest SDR-based transceivers. Participation in the AM Rally has continued to grow over the past five years as more operators explore the mode, said Clark Burgard, N1BCG. The AM Rally is a great way to beat the winter and pandemic blues. The AM Rally is open to all radio amateurs capable of operating on AM using any type of radio equipment from vintage to modern, vacuum tube to solid state. The AM Rally will use the 160, 80, 40, 20, 15, 10, and 6-meter bands. Those who have never tried the AM mode will find plenty of help if needed, Burgard assured. An AM Rally 2021 promotional video is available. Contact Burgard for more information. According to AMSAT, an agreement between the United Kingdom and the European Union has clarified the post-Brexit relationship between the two, with regard to scientific research permitting the UK's continued participation in Cornucopius, the European Union's Earth Monitoring Program. The deal also ensures that the UK and a number of private satellite operators based there will also retain access to the Space Surveillance and Tracking Program established by the EU for space situational awarenesses. The deal, however, does not provide the UK with access to encrypted or secure services on Galileo, Europe's global navigation satellite system. Galileo was established to assist emergency response services on Europe's roads, making railways and roads safer. Although smartphone users may not notice the difference, the UK itself will no longer have access to the satellite services for defense or national infrastructure. Now that we're well into the new year, the RSGB's popular series of live webinars is restarting. Despite the glittering array of commercial equipment available to the radio ham, many still choose to construct their own equipment. And this first webinar of the year draws attention to the world of homebrew. The Radio Society of Great Britain's Tonight at 8 programme starts again on Monday, January the 11th with a webinar on amateur radio construction by Steve Hartley, Golf Zero Foxtrot Uniform Whiskey, and Pete Giuliano, November 6, Quebec Whiskey. The presentation is called Amateur Radio Construction, What to Do, How to Do It, and Why You Should Do It. The RSGB said, despite what many people think, building your own radio equipment is still a very popular aspect of amateur radio. In fact, there has never been a better time to do this, with readily accessible building blocks and high-spec test equipment available at bargain basement prices, or, in the case of software, absolutely free. 
This presentation will cover the reasons why people homebrew radio equipment, share some ideas on how to get started, and show some examples of homebrew gear using hardware and software. You'll be able to watch the webinar on YouTube at www.youtube.com forward slash user forward slash the RSGB. But don't worry if you missed the live event, because the full archive of RSGB webinars can be found at rsgb.org forward slash webinars. The BBC is reporting that one recently proposed solution to the growing problem of space junk is that satellites don't grow on trees. Or do they? Perhaps yes. In Japan, a forestry company has partnered with Kyoto University to work on building a robust and resilient satellite out of wood, something that would be Earth-friendly as well as space-friendly. Their goal is to have one such satellite ready for launch by 2023. The experimental work includes exposing different varieties of wood to extreme temperature changes and sunlight to see how a wooden satellite might behave in space. An added plus would be that upon re-entry, wooden satellites could return to Earth without releasing harmful substances or debris on the way down. Kyoto University professor Takao Doi, a Japanese astronaut, recently told the BBC, We are very concerned with the fact that all the satellites which re-enter the Earth's atmosphere burn and create tiny alumina particles which will float in the upper atmosphere for many years. He said the next step is to develop the engineering model of the satellite, and after that, a flight model. The BBC reports that nearly 6,000 satellites are now orbiting the Earth, according to figures from the World Economic Forum. Some 60% of them are considered space junk, meaning they are no longer in use. In the world of amateur radio, you quite often find that individuals are brought together not only by their shared love of all things radio, but by a second common interest. One such example is the British Railways Amateur Radio Society, who are about to embark on a year of celebrations. During 2021, the British Railways Amateur Radio Society will be celebrating 55 years since its formation. The British Railways Amateur Radio Society had their inaugural meeting on the 29th of October in 1966 at the British Railways Board Headquarters after the efforts of Acting Secretary Gray. One of the founder members of the society who attended that meeting was John Chappell, who is now Golf 4 Zulu Tango Quebec. In 1967, Ronald Hooper, Golf 3 Sierra Charlie Whiskey, attended a meeting in Sweden, which led to the formation of FIRAC, the International Federation of Railway Radio Amateurs. France, Germany and Switzerland initially formed FIRAC, and the organisation now has a membership exceeding 2,000 worldwide. Jeff Sims, Golf 4 Golf November Quebec, has been the president of the BRARS since 1979 and says that their first Congress meeting was held in 1982 in Lowestoft, Suffolk. Membership is open to railway and non-railway members. The Society will be running the special event called Golf Bravo Zero Lima Mike Romeo. LMR, by the way, is also the suffix of the club call. The station will be operated by BRARS member Mark Golf One Papa India Echo from Preston in Lancashire. Bands of operation will be 40 metres to 10 metres using single sideband, PSK31 and PSK63. And there will also be operations on VHF and UHF. 
QSL cards may be sent via the RSGB Bureau or direct with a stamped addressed envelope to mark G1 Papa India Echo. Further information is on QRZ.com and the Society's own website, www.bravo-romeo-alpha-romeo-sierra.info. Imagine collecting the solar power you need from a spot much, much closer to the sun. The U.S. Air Force wants to give that a try. The Air Force Research Laboratory is hanging its hopes on something called Helios. It's a key component named after the Greek sun god and is part of an experiment known as Arachne, expected to be launched into space in 2024. The formal name of the project is the Space Solar Power Incremental Demonstrations and Research Solar Beaming Project. The Air Force Lab describes it as a project that will explore a way to harvest solar energy directly from space, where sunlight is more potent outside the Earth's atmosphere and where solar panels have more hours of exposure. Through use of something called sandwich tiles and other systems, the experiment will convert the collected energy to radio waves for beaming back to Earth as usable power. Helios, which is being supplied by Northrop Grumman, will house the platform on which these solar beaming experiments will occur. Northrop Grumman's role has left the Air Force lab free to concentrate on acquiring a spacecraft where it might all begin to happen. You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net. Many of the news and information items heard on This Week in Amateur Radio have been provided by the American Radio Relay League, the ARRL Letter, the ARRL Audio News, the Southgate Amateur Radio News Service, Southgate Vibes, AMSAT, the Radio Amateurs of Canada, the FCC, the Radio Society of Great Britain and Ofcom, the SARL, the International Amateur Radio Union, the Wireless Institute of Australia, the Amateur Radio Newsline, the International Telecommunications Union, and various news sources on the Internet. And finally this week, a lot of people are saying that their perception of time is being distorted by the various lockdowns and isolation due to the ongoing pandemic. But now we have just a little bit of proof. Scientists that study such things are now saying that time is passing quicker now than at any point in the last half century, official data reveals. Atomic clocks have accurately recorded how long every day is at the millisecond level. Since their invention in the 1970s, the days have been slightly longer than 24 hours. But since mid-2020, the Earth's spin has accelerated and is now, on average, 0.5 milliseconds a day shorter than 24 hours. Earth's rotation is currently faster than normal and, as a result, the length of the day is currently ever so slightly shorter than the regulation 24 hours. The world's timekeepers are now debating whether to delete a second from the time to account for the change and bring the precise passing of time back into line with the rotation of the Earth. While the addition of a so-called negative leap second has never been done before, 
A total of 27 leap seconds have been added since the 1970s in order to keep atomic time in line with solar time. This is because for decades the Earth has taken slightly longer than 24 hours to complete a rotation, but since last year it has been taking slightly less. Since the 1960s, atomic clocks have been keeping ultra-precise records of day length and found that for the past 50 years, Earth has taken a fraction less than 24 hours or 86,400 seconds to complete one rotation. However, in the middle of 2020, this long-standing trend was reversed and days are now regularly shorter than 86,400 seconds. On July 19, 2020, the day was 1.4602 milliseconds shorter than the full 24 hours, the shortest day since records began. Prior to 2020, the shortest day occurred in 2005, but this record has been shattered a staggering 28 times in the last 12 months. This diminutive loss of time is only detectable at the atomic level, but has wide-reaching implications. Satellites and communications equipment rely on the true time aligning with solar time, which is determined by the position of the stars, moon, and sun. In order to keep this harmonious relationship intact, timekeepers at the Paris-based International Earth Rotation Service have previously added so-called leap seconds to a day. This has happened 27 times since the 70s, with the last one on New Year's Eve 2016. However, as Earth has been consistently slowing and not accelerating its spin, there has never before been a need to add a negative leap second. Now there is a debate over whether one may be needed to rectify the growing disparity. It is certainly correct that the Earth is spinning faster now than at any time in the last 50 years. Peter Wiberly, senior research scientist with National Physics Laboratory Time and Frequency Group, told The Telegraph. It's quite possible that a negative leap second will be needed if Earth's rotation rate increases further, but it's too early to say if this is likely to happen. There are also international discussions taking place about the future of leap seconds, and it's also possible that the need for a negative leap second might push the decision toward ending leap seconds for good. Some of the web's most popular sites were laid low on July 1, 2012, after the world's timekeepers added an extra second to the day. Sites including Reddit, Foursquare, Yelp, LinkedIn, Gawker, and StumbleUpon came crashing down after the extra second played havoc with their servers and source code. An extra second is added to coordinated universal time, the benchmark time agreed internationally, every few years to keep it in line with the time as determined by the Earth's rotation. However, many computer applications and digital systems cannot take this into account. Working on the assumption that every minute always lasts 60 seconds, they go haywire when during a leap second insertion they find themselves in a situation they did not expect. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters around the country and around the world on great repeater systems like WA3PBD repeater system on Thursday evenings at 7.30 p.m. on 146.730 and 223.940, covering all of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and beyond. This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates Incorporated. Now for the staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates Incorporated. All rights reserved.